Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards. Help shine a light on the next generation of inspiring young Jewish leaders. Each year, the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards recognize 15 extraordinary Jewish teenagers from across the United States with an award of $36,000 to honor their initiatives to help change the world. You can nominate a teen today or they can apply directly by January 7th. Visit www.dillerteenawards.org unbound to learn more. That's www.dillerteenawards.org unbound. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 301, American Comics and Jewish Comedy. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And before we start this week's episode, we just want to remind you what we announced last week, that the Judaism Unbound merch store has opened, where you can buy all kinds of Judaism Unbound gear for yourself or for Hanukkah for the Judaism Unbound fan in your family or among your friends. We've got t-shirts, we've got mugs, we've got tote bags, we've got hoodies, we've got zipped hoodies, so many things. We've got notebooks. We've got everything you can imagine. Well, probably you can imagine more than we have, and we would love your ideas for what we should be carrying. But we have a lot of things there. And we also have a special Hanukkah t-shirt that we created that has all kinds of ways to spell Hanukkah. And the bottom line, it says that there's no right way to spell Hanukkah, and there's no right way to be Jewish. And that's kind of the Judaism Unbound motto in a phrase. And we are really thrilled that people will be able to wear that around on t-shirts with a menorah. It's going to be great. Head over to www judaismunboundcom slash store or just go to the Judaism Unbound homepage and press the store button. You can also go to judaismunboundcom slash merch. I think we said that last week. Either one of those works and you can find all of these awesome Judaism Unbound and Hanukkah products there. But you should act fast because if you don't order these items in the next few days with all the supply chain issues and everything and all the mail slowdowns around the holidays and who knows what else, it might not get there before Hanukkah ends. So you want to order that as soon as possible if you're hoping to have it as a Hanukkah present. And if you're just hoping to wear it, you should also order it as soon as possible because you need clothes. And we also want to take this opportunity to wish you a happy Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is uh, coming before our next episode. So we're wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. You probably can't get your Judaism Unbound merch in time for Thanksgiving presents, but what are you going to do? So now let's jump into our conversation. Our guest today is Jeremy Dauber. He is the author of a new book that just came out called American Comics, A History. It's a really fantastic book about the history of comics. And of course, Jews played and have played and do play a significant role in the history of comics. I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast, but one of my family claims to fame is that Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel, the creators of the Superman comic, went to the same high school as my grandfather. I'm not 100% sure if they knew each other in high school or they had just gone to the same high school, but still, it's a very important badge of honor for our family. And so we've always taken an interest in this question of Jews and comics. Of course, Michael Shabun wrote a great book called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay that examines some of that territory. And this book, American Comics, A History, explores the history of comics from the very first comics until very, very recently. Our guest, the author of this book, Jeremy Dauber, is the Atran Professor of Yiddish Language, Literature, and Culture at Columbia University. And he is also the author of a number of other books, including The Worlds of Sholem Aleichem, The Remarkable Life and Afterlife of the Man Who Created Tevya, and Jewish Comedy, A Serious History, which came out a few years ago, and we've actually been meaning to talk to Jeremy for a long time about that book, and so we're excited to be able to talk about both of these books and both of these topics today. So without further ado, Jeremy Dauber, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. It's really great to be here, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to ask about your most recent book, American Comics, A History. You have written a bunch of other books that are very squarely on Jewish topics. You're a professor of Yiddish literature. I'm curious, I was curious when I heard about your book, whether it initially was meant to be a book about Jewish comics or something like that, and then somehow it took off in in the more general direction, or did you always mean it to be a, a new direction? 
Well, I had always meant the book to be sort of a general history of American comic books and graphic novels, uh, but uh, my interest in writing about it really had come originally from uh, actually a conference on American Jewish literature, not my interest in comics. I'd been a comics fan from way back uh, uh, and and sort of very, very, you should excuse the expression, very Catholic uh, in my interests (laughs) about what kind of uh, comics I liked. But uh, as an assistant professor of Jewish literature, I was invited to this conference on American Jewish writing today. And I said, you know what? Uh, I think I'll try and pick a topic on and, and, and meld these various interests of mine. And I settled on the writing of a real pioneer of comics, Will Eisner. And Eisner had started out sort of really in the golden age of comics, writing comic books that were not particularly Jewish in their flavor. They really, they had a, there was a hero called the Spirit who was very famous. But later in life, he kind of had this autobiographical turn and he wrote these, ser- these series of short stories, uh, graphic stories about uh, his upbringing in the Lower East Side, thinly disguised autobiographies that became known as the first graphic novel called A Contract with God. It's not quite the right term, but but uh, for what it was, but that's what it was became known as. So Eisner really became my way into writing about uh, uh, comics and graphic novels as an adult. So that story of comics for me was already intertwined with a kind of American Jewish story. And the move to serious and more ambitious kind of personal storytelling in the graphic medium was very much for me looking at first through the lens of a Jewish story, uh, telling a Jewish story about the Lower East Side. Well, a few months ago, we had an interview with Abe Reisman, who had recently written a book on, on Stan Lee. And one of the things that he talked about with us and that he talks about in his book is that a lot of people, especially a lot of Jews, like to think that Stan Lee is very Jewish in his in his approach, you know, and that he's very consciously influenced by Judaism and that, you know, I mean, look, I've used the Spider-Man principle with great power comes great responsibility (laughs) as one way of understanding the one of the core messages of Judaism. But Abe kind of set us straight on that, that at least consciously, Stan Lee really did not see himself that way and didn't want to be seen that way. When I was reading your book, it struck me that you were saying things along similar lines, or at least as possibilities, to some of the comics that people think are absolutely Jewish comics like Superman. And that, you know, you say things like, well, his name was Jor-El, and El is God, you know, and, and so it's like, but you even call that into question. So I'm wondering whether you could reflect a little bit. I mean, how much is this article of faith that we have as American Jews that comics come deeply from a Jewish experience or are fundamentally Jewish. Would you agree with that or disagree with that? Comic books, really, and that first wave of superheroes, really, both in the DC and the kind of the Marvel era, were really sort of the, the, the product, largely speaking, of Jews. So in that sense, are they Jewish? Of course they're Jewish, right? But are they reflections of kind of considered contemplation of Jewish history, of Jewish culture, Jewish myth? Not really. These were these kids, I mean, they were all very, very young when they're creating these sort of iconic figures who are really enmeshed in the American popular culture of the era, right? They're enmeshed in pulp uh, magazines and pulp uh, pulp fictions. Uh, they're in, in comic strips, uh, in movies of the day, and they're trying to kind of filter that uh, uh, into these four color sort of uh, heroes. And you can say... Is that a kind of American Jewish story of saying we want to be real Americans and as a result right. we want to kind of get yeah, you can make that argument, but but it's it, it's a very sort of tenuous and kind of circular argument that that I don't love that much. The one thing that I do think is the Jewishness of a lot of these creators inflected is that looking back before the lens of uh, Pearl Harbor, um, sometimes we tend to forget how strong an isolationist streak there was in American society. There were really a lot of it was a convention of saying, let the not, you know, let's stay out of the war. Uh, the, what's going on in Europe is Europe's problem. And I do think a lot of the Jewish generation, those first generation Americans, they had a much closer relationship to family members in Europe. Uh, and so they were much more pro-interventionists earlier on uh, and, and were kind of leading force in that way. They were fighting Hitler uh, <laughs> among a certain class of people before fighting Hitler was cool, right? Uh, and I think that that is actually an important thing. And I think that it might have been actually quite useful in helping to drum up some support for entering into the war. That said, I do think that that sort of 
desire for a culture and desire for being a real American was certainly part of saying, well, we're not going to call the characters that we write Jacob Kurtzberg or Stanley Lieber or any of these names. We're going to call them names like Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne and all this because we're making American product. And that's what American product is, right? Is to, it means not Jewish, right? And that was, uh, you know, a sort of bland Gentile. But I don't think that that was a meditation on their American Jewishness. I think it was just a strategy of saying, well, this is what it means to get ahead. Um, the final point I'll make is that clearly a lot of these people went into comic books because structural patterns of discrimination against Jews meant that they wouldn't necessarily have been able to get into certain other uh, places that they might have wanted to get to quite so easily. So in a structural and institutional way, the, the relation of Jews in comic books, like the relation of Jews in other mass culture media, uh, is very much a part of the American Jewish story, just not thematically and conceptually like some of the uh, people want to make an argument. I don't really go around like categorizing books or pieces of art or songs or whatever as like, ah, that's a Jewish one. And that's not like really what I think is I could take like take your least Jewish text on the planet written by a non-Jew, like like somebody who is somehow the most far from what we would determine to be Jewish themes. I think it is possible for a Jewish community or a Jewish person to take on a Jewish reading of that text and sort of look to find some some meaning making there. And so like because I sort of approach it that way, the inherent Jewishness of any particular text is less important to me. But I but I do oh, want to talk. Let me just say to that, but I absolutely uh, I absolutely agree with that. Ari. That is that a, co a community can make meaning by reading into a text certain other kinds of things. Right. I think that's absolutely true. So if one if a community wants to go back and find meaning in action comics, number one, in a Jewish way, that's OK. But that's not the argument that that Dan was bringing up and that a lot of people say. They say when Siegel yeah. and Schuster are doing it, they are making a, you know, they are putting And that's the argument that I, I push back against. So and I think that's an important distinction. You know, in the 1980s, Chris Claremont, uh, who is a very famous writer of the X-Men, goes back and not only he creates a Jewish character, this Kitty Pryde, but he goes back and kind of uh, takes a well, the arch villain of the X-Men series, Magneto, and he turns him into kind of a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really invests, like you're saying, a character who's been around in this Marvel universe for decades. You know, he's a master of magnetism. That's what he was. That was basically all he was. Right. <laughs> but invests him with a certain kind of resonance and depth that comes from attaching him into this communal rereading. Right. And that not only is something that an outside community of readers does, but that then becomes, quote unquote, canonical, to use that religious term. Yeah. Right. Uh, in, in, in the heart of the Marvel universe, it brings Jewishness in in a certain way. So I think that, you know, you absolutely can do that. And the history of comics is full of those kind of moves, both by readers and even by writers uh, and artists who start out as readers first uh, of these things. So um, so you did just use the word canonical. I love that you did. And that's something we talked about with Abe Reisman, too, is the idea of canons. But um, we've had a couple religious terms already. Um, and one of them was not a Jewish religious term. You, you jokingly said, like, Catholic. And yeah. I want to I wanna really hold that because one thing I really appreciated about both this most recent book that's coming out and your few years ago book about Jewish comedy is at the beginning, you started in parallel ways saying like, you know, this thing you think is not so serious, this thing you think is is not such a big deal, in one case, like comics, generally, and in the other case, Jewish comedy, it's actually very much a big deal. It's very serious. And in the and in the book that's coming out on comics, you're, you started off and you're like, Here's a, a bunch of gunfire and here's like Catholic and Protestant yelling matches with each other that invoked comics hundreds of years ago, uh, just to bring that Catholic term yeah. back. <laughs> and I thought that that was so important. And I'm somebody who over and over again, I on this show am trying to say like, you know, there's depth, there's seriousness in parts of our society that we write off as trivial, you know, things like pop culture, things like comics within pop culture, things like sports that like I do that in all sorts of ways. And I wanted to hone in on that Catholic and Protestant piece. Like literally, if we were to talk about the the Reformation, if we're talking about Martin Luther and the Catholic Church in this important moment in the history of religion in, in the world, like I don't think most people's instinct would be, ah, yes, we should be talking about comics. So I'd love to hear from you a little bit, and this doesn't have to be so much on the Jewish side as much as generally, like, why are comics important? Like, like why is it a mistake to approach 
the this genre as like, oh, that's sort of this cutesy thing for maybe for kids or maybe for, you know, doing in your spare time that's like not really focused on important issues like, say, the Reformation. Comics isn't really so much a genre. There are lots of genres in comics. There are science fiction comics and sports comics and war comics and superhero comics and autobiographical comics. But comics really is a medium, right? It's a way of putting together sort of images in sequential form, basically. You can have single panel comics too, but basically, often, although not always, with words and, and the images sort of uh, working together with each other, right? And that medium, like all kinds of other medium, can be used for a variety of purposes. Right. Some of them can be very serious. Some of them can look unserious, but can actually have serious messages. And some of them you can look hard and you can read in, as we're saying, a certain kind of seriousness to them. But maybe they're not as serious as all that. Right. In the same way that any other media, you would say, well, there's there's art film, there's cinema, there's film, there's movies, there's, uh, you know, um, there's all this kind of thing. So I think that's the case with comics, too. Comics also, as this kind of visual or visual slash verbal medium, can also be very good for a variety of purposes. And one of the genres uh, that, that can come out is polemical or instructional kind of comics, right? And that's what, as you were saying before, that's what Martin Luther's comics kind of do, sort of in this wars of reformation all the way back. You know, they kind of put out a message, right? It's much more easy to read and to get across um, if it's got these pungent visual messages with sort of a small verbal text. So comics can be very useful in that. Some of those uh, polemics can have real aesthetic effect, uh, ambition and effect and power. And some of them can be crude propagandistic scrolls, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, and, and it's the job of the critic. And by critic here, I don't just mean people uh, in ivory tower universities. But but anybody who's reading this uh, or looking at this to make their distinctions of saying, yes, this this works. This doesn't work. I have recently been buying these graphic adaptations of Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, and mm -hmm. which I read. You know, I actually read the book. Yeah. Uh, that, not, that said, no shame if one hasn't. Um, I've also been buying other graphic adaptations of books that I have read or haven't read. There's a beautiful one about of Dune that just came out. And what's interesting to me, though, is that while I might have thought that in a previous era, the impulse to put out comics like that or graphic adaptations would be to make a cheaper version or an easier version or something for kids. These are actually not that. I mean, the Yuval Noah Harari one is going to be four volumes, which I think the paperback version is $20 a volume. So we're talking about an $80 version of a $20 book. And so the question is kind of like, what's going on? Or do you have a take on that? I mean, for me... I, I love reading them, but I'm not sure that I can analyze them more deeply than that. I'm hoping you can. One thing you can imagine, sort of knowing just the top line of what this book is about, is that there are certain kinds of nonfiction presentations in which a graphic presentation of this material can really help even people who are excellent readers like yourselves understand things in a new way, right? Uh, so, for example, one of the bestsellers of, I think it was 2006 or so, was the 9-11 Commission Report Illustrated. And, you know, it's it it was not even if someone is very uh, a careful reader, it may be very difficult to follow the, the movements of everyone involved in 9-11 in a way that what seeing it, you know, clarifies it much more, much more uh, easily. So I think that is one reason. The second is, in some sense, an aesthetic one, right, is to say we've now reached a point in our understanding and appreciation. This gets back to kind of what Lex was also saying of the comic medium, right? Right, that we could say what we would like and what we would be proud of would be to say a beautifully rendered graphic edition uh, of this text. We'd like to see what it looks like. And it's the kind of thing where because the graphic medium has reached a certain uh, degree of uh, uh, legitimacy that we wouldn't be ashamed to put that on our bookshelves. Quite the opposite. We'd be really proud to do it. Right. You can imagine someone in the 1950s saying, wouldn't you love your novel to be illustrated? And they would say, in my heart of hearts, yes. But, you know, I can't really show it to anybody. It would, it would be they'd be like, ah, oh, this is a kid's thing. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing this kid's thing? You're a serious novelist. That's not the case anymore. So I think it's, you know, it could be a combination of 
purposive for the purposes of you know the original educational pedagogical uh, aspect and this aesthetic aspect i mean if someone came to me and said you know hey i want to turn your new book into a graphic novel i'd be like that's fantastic you know that's uh, i'd be delighted i will say you know so you guys may have both seen jt waldman did this wonderful a graphic adaptation of the book of esther of the megillat esther um which really is a wonderful explication of the book. It adds all of these dimensions uh, uh, to the book. Um, my favorite is that, I've, if I recall correctly, it's been a while since I read, but there's a, there's a passage, a very famous passage in the book of Esther, where it, it basically says the world turns upside down. Uh, and of course, Waldman takes this, in Hebrew, right? Uh, and Waldman takes this and turns the whole visual of it upside down, sort of around and around. Mm -hmm. And we get this sense, viscerally, of a kind of swirling change of fortune that, you know, you can intellectually get to by by reading it or hearing it or something like that but but clearly it, you know it, it's impactful in a very different way sort of watching that go on so I think you know there are a wide variety uh, of Jewish texts that could that have gotten the graphic treatment that could get the graphic treatment uh, uh, and you know that would appeal not only appeal but illuminate in a wide variety of ways no I think that's a really good point and I'm even thinking of like hints we have in the most ancient, very much not visual texts, but like even in like a Torah scroll, there's little moments where there's like, you know, there's famously like a, a letter Vav in one part of the Torah where it's broken and it's like making some kind of metaphorical play about a brokenness that's in the story. There's parts where like for songs, they organize the page differently so that the verses look very pretty visually. Right. Like there's evidence that even in these ancient purely written texts, they had a sense of like, ah, the, making this visual helps. And so I'm, I'm yeah. very much convinced that if we did that with other kinds of texts, it would be helpful. And I'll be honest, I also think there's a lot of folks who have written smart things who did not do so for a broad audience and like maybe should have or maybe could have and like doing some of that translational work to give it visual like you could see it right. as dumbing it down or something right but I think part of what we've part of what this whole transition where comics is no longer disrespected in the way it once was is to realize it's not a dumbing it down it's just right. you can take some complex concepts and through visuals you can explain them in a way that would require a lot of many syllable words it's helpful, but um, I, I wanted uh, on the on the history of comics front um, just one last piece that I thought was so powerful from your intro. I don't usually like say sentences from books, but there was like a particular couple sentences I wanted to read from from what you wrote. Um, the history of comics is one of multiple erasures. For decades, creators frequently remained anonymous or subsumed under house names, but beyond that are the lost voices, individuals and groups. Both creators and representations erased and marginalized by institutional culture. And they don't just deserve to be part of the story. We need them to be, too. That struck me really deeply from our podcast perspective. Over and over again, we're talking about how we need to expand the, the set of voices that are contributing to yeah. Jewishness, to Jewish culture, to Judaism, to Jewish society, and talking about folks who have been in your words, marginalized by institutional culture. And so I would yeah. love to hear from you on both those fronts, like in the comics context, what are you getting at there in terms of erasure? What does it mean for certain voices, certain stories to have been erased in the context of comics? And since you are also embedded in Jewish life and a scholar of Jewish literature, like how would you map that onto Jewish society and or to what extent would you? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think that, you know, one sort of maybe formulation of this, you know, could be that we have to try and get the fullest possible picture of what the stories were, what, sto what our stories were, and the fullest possible picture of what our stories can be. Um, and both of those demand uh, a kind of reckoning with who is getting to tell, and in the case of graphic materials, draw uh, these stories, who appears in them, those kind of things. So, you know, what it turns out, right, of course, if you look at the history of comics, if you look at the history of, uh, you know, uh, America and what is and isn't, doesn't make it into the comics, you know, you can see that there is this wide swath of people who, is, as you're saying, through institutional or structural factors, they just weren't represented. Uh, women were very 
infrequently uh, for a long time sort of writers of comics. Their stories really weren't there uh, in a lot of ways. They were girlfriends or, or wives or romantic uh, interests or something. But, but as sort of autonomous agents of their own desire, not so much for quite, for quite some time. A lot of ethnic others either didn't appear, or if they did, they appeared as objectified uh, African Americans. Uh, you know, appeared uh, really as racist caricatures in a lot of ways. Um, uh, if they appeared at all, Asian characters, particularly around World War II, there was a very, very uh, horrible sort of anti-Japanese caricatures uh, in a way that anti-German caricatures were not quite there. But uh, those were against Nazis. The Japanese were portrayed as sort of subhuman others. And certainly the idea of Asian American characters, something like that, they, they weren't there uh, in any meaningful way. Gay and lesbian uh, characters for, for a wide variety of reasons were absolutely absent, you know, until quite recently. So I think that uh, that is a disservice to our understanding of the past. It's a disservice to our present and, you know, potentially to our future. Although I do think that in many ways, we are much more alive to those emissions and much more interested in rectifying them than ever before. That's not to say that there's not more to do, but there is this sense of saying we we do want to spend uh, some energy thinking about what isn't uh, in the stories that we're telling and what needs to be there. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about one of my favorite books, one of my favorite books, period, but it's certainly one of my f favorite graphic books, is Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. And mm -hmm. great book. Right, and and it's wrong to call it a graphic novel because it's nonfiction. So I don't know exactly what you call it, graphic nonfiction, <laughs> but it's a graphic book about the making of comics and how comics are made. And I think I initially read it because I was interested in comics, but there was one particular part where he talks about the idea and he develops this in a very like psychological way and maybe scientific or pseudoscientific i'm not sure but that he basically says that the more well drawn a character is the less relatable it is to most readers because it looks like someone else as opposed to looking like you the yeah. visual that looks most like you is the just a kind of a smiley face two eyes and a mouth because that looks like anybody or and he has other deeper psychological reasons why he thinks that's the case but the upshot of it is that the more sort of sketchy a comic is, the more it can be widely related to. And then he makes the jump to talk about text that way. And I, when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly, this is what I've been trying to say about the Bible. This is what I've been trying to mm -hmm. say about yeah. other Jewish texts that are written in this very kind of sketchy way. And I almost yeah. wonder whether there's a certain way in which we can say that the Bible and parts of the Talmud really are comics or something like comics, even though they're not drawn. So I don't know, you might have better language than that, but I'm curious about <laughs> like wh whether we can learn from comics and bring that learning backwards to pre-comic genre of the Bible and say, wow, we really can see something here that we might not have seen had we not encountered comics. Yeah, well, I, I think that it, you know your insight on this, I think, is really strong. I, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I would call them as you say, com as you're saying, comic. But I think that 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 insight that you're bringing from McLeod and applying it to the Bible is, is absolutely dead on. You know, this idea that McLeod says that abstraction leads to iconicity, right? This uh, the more abstract we are, the more uh, it applies sort of more broadly, the more we can read into how this resonates with us. Many of the characters and the stories that populate the Bible are quite abstract uh, from the perspective of physical representation. We don't really know what Abraham looks like. We don't know what almost any of the major characters in the Bible look like, even if there's one or two identifying details. Uh, and that allows us to to impute them, and I hear I'm not taking a metaphysical position when I say the next word, uh, a mythic kind of grandeur, right, that allows us to say, this is not just for that time, but this is for all time. These are characters that we can see ourselves in. These are characters that uh, whose motions echo in ourselves. Uh, and I think that that would be less the case the more detail we have about them. Um, it's not surprising that I think it's an easier lift for us to imagine ourselves in the footsteps of Abraham than it is of David, who is much more 
detail that's sketched out uh, in his journey and his character arc, which which provides us with more opportunities to be alienated uh, uh, from him. That said, there are other things that you gain from a finely sketched portrait as well as what you lose, right? I mean, uh, the story of David uh, as a remarkable psychological portraiture that's rare in the Bible. But I think that when you're talking about Torah, you know, you really have exactly what you're saying. And the McLeod point, I think, is right on. I want to hold, like, I want to keep building in this insight Dan brought about abstraction as much as possible but i also want to turn towards jewish comedy yeah to some extent because i i'm very excited to to learn from you on that front um your your book before this most recent one is all about jewish comedy and my family you know my mom's side of the family um she grew up in the catskills she grew up in the borscht belt um, which is a very important place in in any conversation about Jewish comedy. Maybe I overstate it because I have this family connection, but I do think that pretty much everything I've ever read about Jewish comedy yeah. mentions <laughs> mentions the Borscht Belt in the you mid twentieth century. You are not overstating it. Yeah. Um, and my mom grew up in Woodburn, New York, in the Catskills, right near all of these resorts that emerged precisely for the reason that Jews were not welcomed at other kinds of resorts at this time period. And so they set up these like places for Jews specifically to sort of retreat largely from New York City or from wherever and go to the Catskills. And then once they existed, all of these Jewish comedians, and actually I think not just Jewish comedians, but like a lot of them were Jewish, would come and perform in these places specifically for audiences that they knew sort of we're in on the joke if they were mentioning Yiddishisms. Like it, it created this incredible context for for Jewish comedy to flex its muscles in an American context where like their audience was largely Jews, so they could make these jokes that they knew they that would be understood. And so I I'd love to hear from you a little bit about the story of of Jewish comedy and to some extent the story of like American Jewish comedy in the last, I don't know, let's say hundred years or so. And I'm curious just to get some generals, but also like, are there other parallels like in the in the way in which, you know, Jewish comics emerged partially because people weren't getting jobs in other sectors. And so they got jobs in comics or got jobs in Hollywood. Like, is there is there a parallel here where Jews were able to build a kind of I'm using the word again, genre of Jewish comedy because they were sectored off into this place that was not necessarily the same as sort of the rest of Gentile or secular society. The need for comedians uh, in the Borscht Belt was, as you were pointing out, was enormous, was prodigious, almost as prodigious as the appetites for, you know, Borscht. Um, but <laughs> you um, and, and 95 percent of them, you know, you never heard from again. Right. And five percent of them, you know, then went on uh, to become part of the working uh, network of comedians who would play at nightclubs. And they, when Vegas opened, they would start playing at Vegas. And point one percent of them became Mel Brooks and Sid Caesar and sort of the most famous people that we talk about. Right. One in every thousand. Um, we backshadow and we sort of look at the story mm -hmm. through those, you know, couple of really icons. But of course, there was a whole economy of those. And I think, as you say, Lex, I think you're entirely right to say that there, because you had, largely speaking, Jewish comedians playing for a Jewish audience in a Jewish venue, uh, you, you know, there was a certain kind of shorthand that was absolutely being developed. And as a result, when uh, television really develops, uh, you know, which is it really develops as a New York medium, right? It only later really moves out to California. You know, they're saying, well, we need people who also who are local, right? It's live. We need them to kind of come in. We, we can't pre-tape. Uh, and so we're going to say, and we need people who can come and do live shows. Uh, and they said, well, we have this whole cohort of people who are capable of doing this. And so all of that begins. And of course, those people then become over the course of the 50s, some of them become nationally famous. Right. You know, and that's why by the 1970s, you know, the number of American Jews in comedy is, you know, I think it's you know, some people say almost close to 75 percent or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's an insane amount. But you can see why for exactly the reasons that you're talking about. It took me a long time to understand that, like, literally, I grew up hearing conversations. I grew up in Milwaukee and my mom was from the Catskills. And like, I would hear these conversations where we'd meet somebody new. Where are you from? And like, we meet somebody new who's Jewish. Where are you from? Oh, and my mom would say, I'm from the Catskills. And like, this thing would happen where they would light up. And, <laughs> and, and there'd be these like, 
energized, excited conversations, almost like people who talk about like their their Jewish summer camps. By the way, that's basically what these places were, was like kind of Jewish summer camps. Like people with these warm, incredible memories of spending time, even if they spent, you know, one week in the cats. Like, but it was clearly this intense formational kind of experience that was special for them even, you know, decades later. And I really didn't understand it. Like I didn't, uh, it took... Like it took me reading like academic articles or like pieces really diving deep to be like, oh, it's not just that my mom happened to meet some random people that connected to her hometown. Like this is a whole part of Jewish experience. And I think it actually relates to that question of erasure and how like we lose stories very quickly. Like yeah. things that are very grand and important to one generation of people can get relegated to the sidelines very quickly if we're not careful. Um, but so that was sort of a specific lens on Jewish comedy. I do want to broaden and ask some big like category questions, which you which you take on in your book about what Jewish comedy is, right? Like I, I'm I'm because we're talking about it as if it's a coherent thing, right? Like we're we're saying, ah, the history of Jewish comedy, which means like there is something called Jewish comedy that we can sort of draw through history and talk about. And my question is, what is it? And you actually give a couple initial answers in your book. Um, I'll let you offer them. Um, <laughs> I do think I might disagree, but like, what is, how would you tell the story of like, what even is Jewish comedy? And also like, how, how has it changed? How maybe is it changing now in 2021? One of the things that uh, I push back against is this desire that I think a lot of people have to give one answer or one predicate, as we might say, to the sentence Jewish comedy is, right? I don't think, I think a lot of people, well, it's a response to anti-Semitism, right? Or it's the, you know, uh, a juxtaposition of the, the metaphysical promise of being the chosen people with the quotidian aspects of everyday life. And people sort of say, well, it is that thing. And then immediately you can come up with 97 examples of something that's not that thing, right? So um, when you try – that said, when you're writing a book, you have to have some kind of structure to put the book along rather than just say, well, this is funny. And you know what? This is also funny. So uh, I, I came up with sort of seven kind – as Lex is alluding to, seven kind of categories um, that, that a lot of the funny stuff – you know, could roughly speaking be put into these buckets. And these, like any kind of categories, these are ideal types. A lot of the great works uh, overlap and sort of sup of, of a number of them. Um, but but these were these I ideal types. And I also limited my by saying, and this gets back to, again, a conversation we were having earlier with respect to comics, that really what I wanted to talk about was comedy that addressed something about the conditions of Jewish history, culture, or text, right? So if a Jew, you know, created like a really first-class knock-knock joke about bananas and, and fire trucks, that was not going to be, uh, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the in the text, uh, you know, or in my area of, of, of scrutiny. So, uh, you know, you have this sort of response to persecution. You have this kind of satire uh, of various kinds of conditions sort of trying to change different kinds of conditions you have humor of wit and kind of illusion you have a humor of the body sort of vulgar kind of humor uh, you have humor of being uh, kind of not sure about your particular jewishness and that is an important condition and you have a metaphysical kind of humor and the last one is, uh, you know, more about folk humor, focus, humor focused on sort of the folksy and kind of everyday Jew. Those, I think those are the seven. And as I say, you know, these are ideal types. And uh, but but if I, when I I basically started by saying I'm going to try and look at like a wide variety of the stuff that I thought was importantly funny, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and it kind of naturally gravitated into all of these uh, these seven categories. And the conceit that I had was that actually a lot of what we're talking about Jewish comedy is really kind of diasporic Jewish comedy. It really comes out uh, of a very changed circumstance in Jewish tradition that comes after sort of the Jews leave the land of Israel. And as a result, or maybe not coincidentally, the first great work of diasporic Jewish humor, which is the Book of Esther, that has in its own way all uh, traces of all of these seven. And that was sort of the argument uh, of the book, to the extent the book had an argument. I do want to bring up a particular 
YouTube video I just watched that speaks about this what is Jewish comedy question. I watched it. Norm MacDonald just died. Norm yeah. MacDonald, you know, famous comedian, not Jewish. And certain things that I've liked about him, about his style of comedy, he has this like unhumor kind of approach where a lot of his jokes, it's just like he tells long stories and the joke is that he got you to listen for a while. Like there's actually a way in which to me, he pushes how I conceive of Jewish comedy because he is not Jewish, but like things I like about him remind me of a bunch of people I do associate with Jewish humor. So he pushes me on that front. But what I want to bring up is a specific video I watched where Jerry Seinfeld, you know, classic 90s Jewish comedy figure is talking to Norm Macdonald and he says to him, I have a joke for you and you're not going to get it because you're not Jewish. Right. And there was a different guy sitting next to, to Norm Macdonald who was like the host of whatever show or whatever. And he was Jewish. And he's like, you are going to get it. And Norm Macdonald, you're not going to get it. And the joke was approximately a, a Gentile man calls his mom on the phone and, you know, she answers, hello. Um, and, and he says, hey, mom, how's it going? And she says, great. And that's the joke. Right. And, you know, we're smiling. Like <laughs> The joke is that you have to say that it's a Gentile person on the call because like the joke is that Jews, if you were talking to your mom on the phone, the answer would never be, I'm great. I actually played this video for my wife, who's not Jewish, and she got it. And yeah. the reason I bring that up is because I think that this is a great opportunity for us to to unpack and poke at all these things that we talk about as, quote, Jewish. But really, they're, this is a joke that people familiar with Jewish experience, embedded in Jewish experience in some way or another, are likely to get. You know, my wife is not somebody who identifies as Jewish, but she's somebody who, through me, spends a whole lot of time in conversations with Jews. And like, there are people like that. There are really millions of people who, at this point, might get the joke. And there's also some Jews. And you know, what's funny is like, I think more and more elements of Jewish humor that are about being an outsider, right? That are about being different from society, which sort of fits with many of the categories you're saying. If you're telling those kinds of jokes in Israel, where Jewish Jewish is actually the main shared, where most of the society is Jewish, those might not land as well because it's about being an outsider. And so, but they'd still be Jewish humor if you told that joke there. So I guess I'd love to hear like, could we expand our ideas of Jewish comedy in a way that is not just about Jews telling them, but rather about, roughly speaking, Jewish communities that include non-Jews sharing them with one another, something like that. Because our world is changing and more and more non-Jews are part of Jewish communities. This work of Jewish comedy that Jerry Seinfeld did was not so much telling the joke, but the performance to Norm MacDonald about what it meant to be Jewish or not Jewish and understand. Mm -hmm. That's the real joke, right? Not actually the joke. That itself is something which reminds us that almost all of the things which we call Jewish comedy, unless they are written and performed in stand-up by a single person, and even then, if it's filmed, are collaborative efforts with a wide variety of people, some of whom are Jewish and some of whom are not. Any Mel Brooks movie has mm -hmm. a ton of Gentiles uh, who are involved in every aspect of making that movie, from the writing to the uh, to the filming to the production to the dissemination, all of that. These are all collaborative media. What you're also, I think, asking is what does it mean to be a community that appreciates a Jewish joke? Right. Well, on one level, that community is just to say America, right? In the same way that all sorts of the stories of comedy in America and the story of Jewish comedy in America, but also black comedy in America or Asian comedy in America is an increasing permeation or gay comedy in America, a permeation of those tropes and ideas in a way that everybody can get the joke. Two related questions to that are first, who is authorized to tell a Jewish joke? which I think is a very tricky and complicated question. Um, it's something which gets into questions about authenticity and authority that are being raged around in all sorts of contexts right now. And the question of whether or not Jewish humor is so almost in an aesthetically metaphysical sense unique that nobody else can touch that. And that is a position I've never held. Often when I would do public events about this, people would come up to me and say, but what's unique about Jewish humor? And I would say, like they were going to get a gotcha kind of question. And I would say, well, it's unique because it addresses a particular historical set of circumstances about people who are Jews. And they said, no, no, but isn't it that it's unique about the response to persecution? I'm like, no. 
<laughs> Isn't it unique because it's about sort of the divine? No, none of these things are unique. It's just that they're inflected in our, in the case of Jewish comedy through a particular set of historical, uh, cultural, one can argue theological circumstances. And those are, as you pointed out before, Lex, those are circumstances which have some degree of objective reality to them and are also meaning made by a series of communities that are always changing. Uh, and the combination of those factors is something which makes the definition of what Jewish comedy is constantly in flux. One thing that's on my mind is these surveys of contemporary Jews, the, the Pew study, et cetera, where famously a huge number, I don't have it right here in front of me, but a huge number says, for example, that having a sense of humor, having a good sense of humor yeah. is an important component of being Jewish. And the reaction of the Jewish establishment is often like, "Ugh, what a disaster, you know, instead of thinking that it's about praying. It's about having a sense of humor. We've really gone astray. And so one of my questions is like, but maybe that having a sense of humor has actually been built into the fabric of Judaism from the very beginning, or at least at many times before now. I'm not saying that that it's constitutive and we've never lost it. I'm just saying that if we see that there has been comedy from the beginning, then maybe it's a little less of an ugh, you know, to imagine that actually, no, the, these folks are are actually part of a certain tradition. And I'm just thinking, and this is maybe where I'm conflating two things, but I'm thinking about Curb Your Enthusiasm. And we think about that kind of humor where my wife, for example, we're talking about our wives here, my wife thinks it's not funny. And she thinks a lot of it is very offensive and and I think it's hilarious. And sometimes the the joke comes when some weird, you know, measure for measure happens to Larry David, and then you hear the song, dun, 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 you know, and I'm imagining the, the Bible with the Jacob story where, you know, he's he's taken his brother's birthright and he's taken his brother's blessing and he's done all these horrible things. And then he, you know, he, he, he gets to this place and this greatest day is here and he's getting married to the love of his life. And then, you know, they, they get married and they have sex and he wakes up and he wakes up and he looks over and it's the wrong wife. And then you hear, dun, 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 you know, and, and it just feels to me like it's that kind of humor. And I wonder if there's actually a lot of humor in the Bible and the Talmud that actually we've missed that it was meant as humor. It was a kind of humor that either that genre, like I can imagine Curb Your Enthusiasm not being funny in a hundred years. You know, there's a certain moment in which it's funny. And and I just sort of wonder whether there has been excavation of that. I mean, you also write about, about Sholem Aleichem and Tevya, and you know, maybe there's yeah. something, maybe there's a sense there that he's picking up on some of the comedy that's inherent. Well, no, so, well, I mean, you know, to start with that, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the arguments that I, that I often, and that I made in the book, and that, you know, is to say that there is a kind of humor in the Bible, uh, that there absolutely is a kind of humor in the Bible, but it does, you know, it, but it is a humor that sometimes we're uncomfortable with, or in most of the Bible, I should say, certainly in the, in the Torah, right? And it's, it's a kind of triumphant mocking humor speaking broadly about people making fun of people who aren't on God's side and you know saying oh the you know I mean one classic example of this that's brief right is when Elijah is mocking the prophets of Baal um, who you know are and they're trying to light this this uh, sacrifice and it's not lighting he's like maybe your God's gone to the bathroom right you know that kind of thing right clearly that's co that's humor Right. Clearly, that's a, but it's a it's a humor where Elijah kind of looks, a little, you know, you could say if, if a student is reading this now, doesn't Elijah look a little bit not so nice, right, that he's kind of beating on these poor priests who back the wrong horse or whatever when they're down like that. He's punching down to use a, you know, a terminology that we often use. And I think, you know, you could say, well, that, that's true. Right. But that is that is part of what humor is. And sometimes it's as you were saying with the uh, curve, you know, it's not pretty. It's not that right. Humor can vary. And, and one, one of the ways that, and we often don't recognize that as a kind of Jewish humor, because after the destruction of the temple, so much of the Jewish diasporic condition really is about an ironic twist to that kind of triumphalism. Right. It's one thing to write that when you have God in your temple. Right. And, and you're expanding your empire. Everything sort of looks good. Once that all is destroyed. Right. You can't make any of these these statements without a little bit of an ironic twist to them. And that's something that we much more associate it with our sense 
of Jewish comedy. On the one hand, Larry David is a star. Uh, he's he's uh, you know he's he's made Seinfeld. He's he's hugely rich. Everyone wants to suck up to him. On the other hand, he's a schmuck uh, and everybody hates him uh, and he does all these terrible things. On the other hand, it's his show, the real Larry David, right? So we know that he's doing this with himself, right? So the wheels go round and round, and that kind of wheels within wheels is something that we very frequently associate it with Jewish comedy, but. It's not clear to me that that's the only the Jews are the only group who have to do it, right? And so, it only seems to me, and and I I end up being a stick in the mud about this. The only place that I like to make these definitions is where there's a clear link to something which is explicitly Jewish, because otherwise you could say, well, it could be true of anybody, uh, and that's where that gets to that sense of humor question, Dan, that you brought up earlier, which is to say, great people think sense of humor is good about being Jewish. I'm glad that people think that. I'm also glad if they think that it's part of being a good uh, parent or or a good citizen or a good this or a good that. It doesn't strike me that uh, maybe it's necessary, but so what? Um, you know, it, it it it's only important to me insofar as it's linked to something that's sort of more profoundly connected. So maybe that's a slightly more nuanced version of the ugh reaction uh, that that. You know, I agree with you that people get when when they see this, right? Um, but to me, that that is a you know, it would be a little bit limited if it was only oh, I could laugh at any joke out there, and that shows that I'm a good Jew. So as we finish this out, I'd love to think about you know the future. I'd love to think not only about <laughs> where Jewish comedy comics have been and are, but where they're going, and I. I mean, I'm really into pop culture in general, and one of my biggest hot takes that I give the most frequently is that like there is sacredness in TV that we watch, in movies we watch, in songs we listen to, etc. Like we shouldn't trivialize those. Recently, I feel like there's some fascinating shifts to how Jewishness is presented on TV, especially, um, also in film maybe, but on TV especially. And you talked about how like historically Eisner say you know was mostly not not approaching Jewishness in any kind of way initially. And then there was a trajectory towards some more of that later on. And I think if we were to draw this story historically, that's actually parallel to how a lot of things have happened. Like if we look at Jewish TV shows in the 90s, even like Seinfeld, which everybody, a lot of people associate with Jewishness, it wasn't featuring Jewish rituals. It wasn't, you know, having candle lightings and anything. And Larry David, the same person on Curb Your Enthusiasm, he's had Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, he's had Passover Seders, he's had, like, there's a way in which he has also been on that trajectory. There's a way in which generally we're seeing more like concrete manifestations of like what we might term in quotes like religion. We're also seeing people like Rachel Bloom really taking a Jewish kind of aesthetic or character, the, the neurotic Jew. She's made it an entire show uh, looking at like question, looking at questions of neuroticism, crazy ex-girlfriend, and in really sophisticated ways that talk about mental health. And in certain senses, it's a continuation of like a Woody Allen kind of Jewish neurotic thing. But in many ways, it's actually directly upending and like saying, we kind of messed this up. And we threw this caricature of neuroticism, we like perpetuated some really harmful things. And she's like trying to sort of do some work to change how we approach that kind of character in TV shows. But she has songs about the Holocaust and remembering that we suffered and Jewish mother jokes and entire rap battles built around Jewish organizations and um, famously the Jap battle, Jewish American princess, which is a really offensive term, but she's sort of naming its own offensiveness in creating this rap battle. Oh, all that's to say, like, I I'm very convinced that Jewish comedy in a few decades from now is going to really look different or be inflected differently than it has been. And I'm curious to the extent that you've thought about that trajectory, to the extent that you've been teaching this for yeah. a couple decades and it's been changing, what you, would, what you would close out by remarking on there. Well, I'll say that, you know, in both of the examples you gave, I mean, it's, you know, you're absolutely right that this is a, a, you know, a changing narrative. And it's a changing narrative, which is conditioned in no small way by changing technology of popular culture. So Larry David uh, is doing very Jewish stuff on what was not TV. It was HBO, mm -hmm. to use that True. old slogan, right? And so when you move to a, a pay cable audience, you're you were allowed to be more experimental, um, uh, you know, and so the... Certainly, even when he started the show, which is now unbelievably something like 20 years ago, you know, he's still going, but it's unbelievable. 
that uh, you were able to say, well, this is a small audience. This is a, a subscriber. We're trying to, we, we can do things that are more experimental. Uh, in terms of Rachel Bloom, there's another technological thing. She starts really as an internet presence, as a YouTube presence. Mm-hmm. I was just looking. Uh, her historically accurate Disney princess song has, you know, 2.9 million views. Now, it's been on for years. I don't know how many it had when, when she came to the attention, but she was able to produce work that was much more explicitly Jewish in a venue with sort of very small barriers to entry. And that allowed her to come to the attention of people saying, well, you know, if hundreds of thousands of people like this thing, maybe we can take a risk on it. And of course, it didn't appear on NBC. It didn't appear on ABC. It appeared on the CW, which allowed for a much smaller, still network, kind of, but a much smaller kind of uh, audience possible. Also, at a time when audiences were uh, shrinking uh, for, for mainstream network television. And, and shows like Transparent or Broad City that appear on cable or appear on streaming, they are able to take risks uh, because they can make their model work by appealing to a much, much more minuscule fraction of the audience than something like Seinfeld uh, or Friends uh, or you know the abortive Jackie Mason show Chicken Soup, those, that those things had to do. So I think that this is all to the good. Right. In other words, I think that you have this plethora of possible options, really bottom up options uh, like YouTube and what have you, or TikTok or what have you. You have top down options, but still that are much smaller and have different kinds of economic models like this major streamers. Uh, uh, they can try something. Amazon can try a transparent because they can say, look, we think that this is going to be a prestige show and we don't really care if not that many people watch it uh, as long as it helps us do what we want to do, which is be a studio that might get us in contention for Emmys, which is which it succeeded uh, uh, quite well at. What that does, though, is then send a message that a show which features very explicit Jewish portrayals like Transparent or a very, as you say, incre- as the seasons went on, an increasingly nuanced portrayal of neurosis and sort of, you know, uh, like Crazy Ecturocorin can be critically acclaimed and that will demand more. I mean, you're seeing this right now, I think, with um, uh, Unorthodox that appeared on Netflix during the mm-hmm. pandemic. You know, this was in certain ways uh, not a constituency and the success of Schnitzel from Israel, but streaming, you know, internationally. Uh, this was a population that really, you didn't see the stories so much told, uh, uh, you know, on on mainstream entertainment media. Not all these are funny, obviously. Unorthodox and Schnitzel aren't really comedies, but uh, you know, the, it's pushing that sort of aid of representation. Uh, right now, not talking about uh, the, the book I'm probably going to write next is about horror, um, and mm-hmm. so you know, you see Squid Game is now sort of taking over everything. You know, you would have said, oh, is a show that really features Korean actors in Korean, uh, is this going to be a popular sell? No, but it could be one of 500,000 things that Netflix puts on. Um, and so we can just throw it on and see what happens. Uh, and now, of course, people are saying, we want to see more content like this. Uh, and I think that's happening in its own ways with Jewish representation, uh, both comedic and dramatic uh, uh, on, on screens. And so I think, you know, 25 years from now, you're, you're going to be much more comfortable with a general audience saying, oh, here's this new show about this particular Jewish community. And it's part of, as I'm saying with Squid Game, uh, an international thing, too, where you're saying, oh, we're much more comfortable seeing shows about uh, a, a small town in France or a small community in Turkey. Um, these are all grist for the mill. So we're getting sort of a much more globalized cosmopolitan audience and, and Jewish stories as part of that diversity are only going to benefit from that. I just want to say, I was going to ask you this after we went off the air, but I'm going to say it now because you just said what your next project is going to be maybe about horror. And I'm so excited to hear that because I have a distinct memory, something like 30 years ago, that when we were in college and you came over and were in our house and woke up in the morning and over breakfast, I think you were giving this disquisition on Stephen King. And I remember (laughs) my family and I being like astonished that this like college student had an encyclopedic knowledge of Stephen King, so our listeners should definitely be excited about that uh, 30 years later. You already had it then. Well, you know, I try and do write these books for the 17-year-old in me or the young mm-hmm. college student, so the idea that I'm writing this thing about Stephen King all these years later, it's just like icing on the cake. Absolutely. I'm excited to read that. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure you have thoughts about this and we don't have time to go into them, but I think like comedy is sort of coded Jewish I think like I think yeah. a lot of people when they hear comedy or Jewish comedy it's like obviously connected 
for me, horror or thrillers is not coded Jewish in the same way. Yeah. And so I'm excited. I, I don't know if that'll be like a Jewish themed book or if it will just be a general book, but like I'm excited to, to see your wisdom on that. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you guys for having me. It really, uh, really is such a pleasure. And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We also hope, really, really hope that you will read American Comics, A History by Jeremy Dauber. It just came out and we definitely encourage you to purchase it. You can find a link in our show notes. You can also just Google that, American Comics, A History. You'll find the book. Definitely read it cover to cover. It's really worthwhile. And uh, we want to close out this conversation also by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And you can do that in a wide variety of ways. The first is that you can head to our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. All of those are just at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. Third, you can head to our emails, dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. We greatly appreciate you sending anything there. And we also are super grateful for any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way, which you can do via www.judaismunbound.com slash donate on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift. The last note to mention is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. 310 more days of Shemitah.